Hello, year polygamy listeners and friends. It's been a year since I've talked to you all on the subject, and as you know, we wrapped up the Year of Polygamy podcast with a hundred episodes on the principle of plural marriage and Mormonism. So much has happened since then, in just a year. I plan to update you each year with several episodes on the state of Mormon polygamy, just because the landscape of polygamy changes so quickly, and so much has happened since we stopped recording. I could keep recording each week on this subject, but because it's such a heavy topic and I've really shifted my efforts on this topic towards activism, it's difficult for me to find the time. Of course, we have the Color of Heaven podcast, which has been wildly successful, and I hope to record more of the Story of Woman podcast, but the research on that is bonkers, time-consuming. This month, I'm going to be releasing a total of six episodes on the subject of polygamy. We have historians back. We even have a woman from Islam discussing plural marriage in her culture. We have Mormon fundamentalists who have left their group. And even my husband, my elusive husband that nobody really knows anything about is going to, he's actually volunteered begrudgingly to come on the podcast. So that's what uh, to expect this month. For now, thanks for listening and please consider a monthly donation. I don't podcast full time, although I wish that I could. I have a regular job and a family and podcasts in my free time and it can often make things really tricky for my friends and family so if you want to show that these efforts are worth those sort of sacrifices please consider a donation it makes things a lot easier to bring you this content that i produce edit and record all by myself thanks for listening and it's nice to see you after a year of polygamy i hope that since we last spoke your year has been filled with health happiness and love I hope you enjoy the program. And if you like this music that you're hearing, it's Lady Murasaki. Check them out on Facebook. Show them some love, too. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy a year later. I am really excited to do an interview that we haven't done before. We've been focusing on the principle of Mormon plural marriage, Mormon polygamy. And today we're going to get a different perspective. We're going to talk to someone who is amazing. Her name is Yasmin Remen, and she is a feminist, um, an activist, comes from the Muslim community, and she does a lot of work and scholarship around gender equality. So, Yasmin, can you say hello? Hello. So, Yasmin, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you know anything about this subject of polygamy. Okay. Um, right. My family are of um, Pakistani and Indian origin. Uh, in my sort of extended family, there are some polygam- polygamous marriages, but not very many. It was always a practice that, within certainly within the Pakistani context, was frowned upon, and second wives were, were labeled as um, sotan, which means the other woman, so like a mistress. So even though it's it's um, an accepted Islamic practice across the, the very various sects of Islam, um, it's it's not something within my own personal experience that that was accepted. But um, I got a real interest in studying polygamy when I was studying for my master's in women and child abuse and I was thinking what could I possibly do as um, my research topic for my dissertation and my daughter bought me a book David Ebershoff's The 19th Wife and said to me have you ever thought about this mum given our, our backgrounds and um, and some of our family history and that was it I was absolutely hooked from then on um, so I've spent the last Oh gosh, six, seven years researching polygamy, prim- predominantly looking at Muslims in Britain, but I'm also now meeting um, Africans living in Britain who are engaged in customary marriages. There have been stories in our press, and I've been trying to get more information and some interviews with um, there's a, a Jewish rabbi who wants to um, re-establish an old rabbinical tradition of, of polygamy. But he's a very isolated case. But certainly in terms of um, African Christians, um, Muslims from across the, the, the Muslim world. Um, and I'm also incredibly interested in what's happening in, in the U.S. and in Canada around this issue. Great. Well, and we have a lot of familiarity after this podcast with what is happening in the U.S. and in Canada. But I was surprised to know that 
Mormon polygamy, as predominant as it is, especially in the Intermountain West, is not, um, as far as the United States goes, there are more Muslim polygamists than there are Mormon polygamists. Um, that, that doesn't surprise me. Um, I mean, Islam has certain preconditions in terms of, um, you know, that you can only have four wives at any one time, but it's got to be because the wife is ill or she can't have a son or she can't bear children. None of which, um, even though I, I you know, I, I'm of Muslim heritage and my faith is important to me, that I think are justifiable reasons for promoting and continuing a practice that, that basically is inherently unequal, um, and I think provides a conducive context for violence against women and children. So give us a little bit of background on, um, Islam, which, sorry, that's a broad question. On Islamic polygamy, what would be the theology behind it? You, you said up to four wives, and there are certain yeah. reasons why it's acceptable. And yet in the Pakistani culture, like you mentioned, it's acceptable, but it's sort of looked down upon. And, and in Mormonism, it's looked down upon now, polygamy is, but, but there was a time when if you lived with plural wives, you were the top of society. You were the elite. So kind of explain, give us some context for why uh, this practice exists. Okay, in terms of, of why it exists, um, it's in the Quran. It's, um, you know, there are different different versions of it. Um, so basically in um, Surah An-Nisa, uh, polygamy is mentioned in, in the Quran. And it, you know, the context was the Battle of Uhud where... Um, a number of, of women had been left as widows. There were children who were orphans. And polygamous practice is pre-Islamic anyway. But it was deemed that in order to offer some sort of protection for for those women and those orphans at the time, that men could take more than one wife. You know, we're talking about a very um, patriarchal tribal society. So in that context, it may have been appropriate where there was an absence of a welfare state or any kind of safety net that this was seen as, as, um, you know, a possible way forward. But the, the Quran itself, I don't think, and I'm not a theologian, I don't think is clear because on one hand it says, um, you know, that you can have, um, that men are the protectors and maintainers of women, um, because God has given them, um, one more than the other and because that, you know, they are seen as the supporters. Um, that he can marry four wives, but only if he treats them equally. Um, which, but then again, it goes on to say later in the same verse that it's best to only have one wife. So it's it's not as straightforward, and there's this huge um, theological debate amongst um, Islamic scholars, um, you know. Um, Islamic jurists, um, particularly amongst women. So there's an organization called Sisters in Islam that's based in Malaysia, which have done incredible groundbreaking work around challenging polygamous practices. There's also Dr. Amna Wadud, who's, who's American, um, who's also done some, some really interesting work. So that's the justification in terms of the Quranic textures. And, um, you know, it's also very clear in terms of the circumstances. So you don't just take another wife because you feel like you want one. So it's about, um, if the first wife is infertile or she's failed to produce a male child or that she's ill and can no longer fulfill her marital duties. Um, but even then, I'm just, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with that notion. I mean, infertility isn't just down to women. Um, you know, we've got medical interventions now. Given that children are a blessing from God, shouldn't we be accepting both daughters and, and sons. I mean, the Prophet himself um, had three, survive, three surviving daughters for. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think there's also lots of evidence of um, in um, the history of Islam, in the Hadith, in the, the Quran itself, that also undermines it, um, undermines the position of polygamy. The, the whole premise about treating women equally, I mean, how could you ever do that, even if it was just sort of in terms of economic responsibility, even then you're dividing and then subdividing um, whatever you know, financial economic support the family have. But even in the case of the Prophet Muhammad himself, um, you know, most texts say 
that Aisha was his favourite wife out of all of the wives that he had. So even he, the Prophet of Islam, was unable to, to treat his, his wives equally. How many um, wives did he have? Oh gosh, um, there are, there are varying reports. So he was married to Khadija for something like 27 years. And it was only after her death that he then, um, entered into, um, multiple marriages. And there are varying figures between, I think, 11 and 13 off the top of my head. So I'm, I'm curious in, in this number. So four is the, the limit for average people, but I would assume that there are people practicing it within the context of Islam that would have more than four wives. Is that true? Um, absolutely. And I think there are also kind of situations where um, in the people that I've interviewed where a man will, once he hits four and decides that he wants to have another one, a fifth wife, then dispenses with, with one of the four that he already has. Um, and so the justification is about property and um, really women as as a mechanism to bear children and if they can't, then their their worth is somehow devalued. They're they're um, yeah, they're sort of broken. But, and so we we find one that works a little bit better. Um, there's there's the whole issue of, of being able being able to have children, but there's also I mean this this bit about if she's ill or unable to fulfil her wifely duties that um that she can also be dispensed with, and this sort of fits very much in with um. In Islam, you know, it, marriage is not a sacrament in the way that it is in, in Christianity. It's a contract. Um, you don't even require an imam to perform a marriage. I mean, there are some you know, um, religious aspects around it, but it's very much a contractual relationship. So in return for um, protection, whatever that may be, you know, financial support, um, a house to live in, um, you know, support for children etc um you know there's there's a uh that there are certain services that a woman has to perform so in america especially we have a huge xenophobic streak running through us there's a lot of islamophobia and so i don't want to amplify that but i do want to talk about extremist islam for just a minute because it seems that you know we hear about maybe certain um, groups in ISIS that will take kidnapped children, women, and uh, marry them as wives. And so when we're talking about protection, it doesn't make sense to me, um, the rationalization. So do you want to talk about the sort of radical strains of Islam? And, and I want to point out to my listeners that before we want to say, oh, you know, Islam is, is net bad or anything like that, that within Mormonism we have extremist sects, not just polygamous sects, but extremist groups who um, are stockpiling weapons in their, you know, in their walls and in their sheetrock. So we can't really uh, cast the first stone, if you will. Yeah. I think it, it, I mean, it's a real difficulty for me as a Muslim woman to be raising the issue around polygamy or forced marriage or honor-based violence um, and to do it in a way that's objective and doesn't add um add to this whole sort of sense of islamophobia but in in the same vein um as a as a feminist as a human rights activist i feel i also have a duty to be exposing some of these practices so um what we've certainly seen over the last i would say 30 years or so we've seen this sort of drip drip feed of um a Wahhabi Salafi interpretation of, of Islam, which comes from Saudi Arabia largely. And the whole kind of basis of Salafism is um, about being pure Muslims, about returning to a time um, of the early Muslims who were seen as, as, as pure and divorcing religious practice, given that there are 1.6 billion Muslims across the world, from um, cultural practices. And within that, we have seen um, certainly a rise in um, the imposition of Islamic dress codes on one level. So, um, you know, as a Pakistani woman losing the way that we dress and the way that we practice our faith um, and it being replaced by a very kind of Saudi style, sort of the, the black covering that, that you will see a lot of women wear, the face covering, the hijab, etc., which I know that has been 
reams and reams written about and lots talked about it as well. But what you've also seen in parallel with that is a resurgence of, of polygamy in communities that perhaps had, had, you know, had began to move away from it um, on one level, certainly in the UK context. And when I've been interviewing men and women, um, and they talk about, with young women talk about entering into marriage or with older women talking about their own experiences or maybe looking for potential husbands for their daughters, polygamy is openly discussed. Young men are openly saying, and, and older men, that if I marry you, you will not be my only wife. I mean, that was unheard of 20, 30 years ago. No one would ever say that. Um, but now it's, it's, um, it's something that's, you know, I'm hearing every day. It's almost becoming, you know, a common expression. But there's another side to this, which I think is, for me is, is even more worrying than it happening in a Western context where Muslims living in the West, we have, we have far more freedoms. We have access to civil legal systems. We live within, um, you know, the context of, of government and law, which is, is framed within human rights principles. And that's not the same for our sisters in other parts of the world. So, um, you know, we've seen the attacks of, I mean, the, the horrendous attacks on, on Yazidi women. And, you know, in the Quran, as in other religious texts, slavery is mentioned, um, you know, taking the spoils of war, which is usually women, um, you know, is mentioned within religious texts, but Muslims have not practiced traditionally by living to the, you know, living by these literal interpretations of Islam. This, these extremists are political movements, but they have something to draw upon. And as Muslims, we can't get away from that. The Quran provides a basis to a degree. Um, I have, I have, I know of, um, instances where women are being offered up from refugee camps across the world. As second, third, and fourth wives to, to men in living in the West, which is just is just shocking. And for me, that's not about marriage. That's about sexual exploitation and prostitution. So that Western men will, um, you know, in in their desires to have additional wives and maybe not have the burden of bringing them to the West, but can go and um, visit them is is how it's it's placed in in these advertisements. Um, and then these men will then send, you know, in line with their Islamic duties, send financial support every month, which, you know, will probably be siphoned off. It also opens up for me a whole issue around potential for trafficking and trafficking of young girls into, you know, the sex industry. Who knows where they will end up? Abuse of children. It's, it's just shocking on every level. Do you think that there is a connection between extremism and polygamy? Absolutely. I think even if you look at the Mormon context, it's, it's the FLDS. It's, it's, it's sort of a, a smaller sect within, and you will know much more about this than I do within, um, you know, the broader Mormon church. It's certainly whether we're, if we're looking at the Islamic context, I think it's definitely something that's being pushed by the more puritanical, austere, orthodox interpretations of Islam, which are certainly at the extremist end of it. I think the difference possibly is customary marriages and the African context, which I've not yet seen. I, I can't yet place within that sort of extremist mode. But we're talking about far fewer numbers, certainly in Britain. Look, and I, I, I don't think it's quite the same. Tell me more about I want to talk. I want to go back to Islam. But tell me more about these African Christians that you've come into contact with. What is the, I'm, I'm always interested in the reasons behind this. What would be the doctrinal prescriptions for, you know, African Christians to engage in plural marriage? I know that there's a long tradition in some African communities of uh, polygamy in some form or another, but the Christianity uh, connection is something that we're seeing pop up here too in America amongst just independent Christians. I'm really puzzled by this because on one hand, you've got this, um, you, you know, you've got Christianity being um, propagated via sort of missionary expeditions in Africa and a real sort of push towards monogamous relationships. Polygamy um, predating, like it does, predates Islam, predates Christianity, happening with it within the African context. And I can't quite, and even in the interviews I've undertaken, can't quite find where the basis of this comes from other than 
some sort of holding on to what is traditionally African or perceived to be African within these within these specific contexts. So I can't. I, I've not been able to find the doctrinal justification in the way that I can quote from a particular you know, scripture in the Quran. I've not been able to do that with um, the African interviewees that I've spoken to. But it's obviously a real issue in Africa. Um, you have the Customary Marriages Act in South Africa, where you know, along with sort of international human rights bodies, have decided not to include polygamy as violence against women and girls in terms of harmful traditional practices. And the justification for that, and this is in the Banda Report um, 2008, is that um, there has to be a way of protecting women who are already in polygamous relationships. So, um, hence the Customary Marriages Act. You've also seen recently legislation in Uganda, in Kenya. I'm trying to think of where else now off the top of my head, but those two countries certainly have jumped out at me in terms of, um, you know, recognizing polygamy as as a practice within those contexts. This is going to be a complicated question, but I want to talk about consent, informed consent in polygamous marriages. This is something we as Mormon feminists are really concerned about, and not just in polygamy, but the idea that from a young age we're taught that we should be married. And so, you know, I got married at a very young age. And although I chose to do that, I have some complicated feelings about how informed I was on that choice. So when you know, these women are engaging in these um, marriages. And I know that this is a broad spectrum that we're talking about. How much are you seeing the women actually consent to this lifestyle and prepare themselves and want to be part of this this lifestyle? I have to say that most of the women I've spoken to, I'm not sure it's full and free consent. A lot of the women have said that basically they, their mothers and they themselves lived their lives with with the threat of polygamy hanging over them, that if you don't fall into line, if you don't do, you know, whatever it is that he wants you to do, then you will be replaced by another woman. So, you know, she's she's constantly having to to deal with this issue. There's a, there's a you know, if you're raised within a faith, um, and you're told that this is the word of God, you're not just challenging a father or an uncle or a brother who may be arranging this this union for you. But you're ultimately challenging the words of God. Um, I wanted to quote one of the women who I interviewed a while ago. Um, and, um, she basically said her husband had entered into, um, they were a Nigerian couple, both Muslims. And he, he, um, is married to a British Nigerian woman. And then he, he goes to Nigeria and, and marries a widow and comes back and tells his wife and she really really struggles and this is an educated woman has a master's degree from you know one of the best universities in the UK has a high powered job so it's not always sort of marginalized disenfranchised poorly educated women we're talking about women from across the spectrum and as she was talking to me and she said look I'm I'm really struggling I'm really struggling with all of this it's really difficult but what I have to do is pray that God makes me a better, a better Muslim because God has said this is acceptable. He is exerting his religious rights that God has given him. And that has really, really stayed with me, really stayed with me because she just felt that there was no space for her to challenge her husband's action. There are other women who have become second and third wives who, you know, were based overseas, have agreed to become second and third wife of a man they know is already married because it brings with it um, a certain status. It maybe helps her family out of poverty. You know, there will be a myriad of, of reasons why she does it. I've met, I've met several women who are actually no different to me, Lindsay. They educated British born Muslims who've grown up in quite liberal families but have found themselves in a position where they're divorced with children and want to have a relationship with a man, cannot contemplate a physical relationship outside of, of the framework of marriage, know that if they that it becomes increasingly difficult to marry within our communities with children because men, Muslim men, of course, like other men, are sometimes very, very reluctant to take on anyone else as, as children. You also have Sharia courts who will 
women are only ever guardians of their children in Islam. They never, they never have full custody. The father always maintains full custody rights. So, you know, in that sense, there can be a fear of, of losing their children. So they, they try to make, make the best of a pretty bomb deal, I think, in that they agree to these, to become second and third wives. They stay in their own homes. They maintain their children. The husband turns up one or two nights a week. He doesn't have to take on responsibilities of anyone else's children or be a full-time dad. She gets to ha have a sexual relationship, but also maintain a modicum of, of independence. So it's trying to navigate the best course that they, they can find within a, a structure that is very, very, I think, imperfect. So I think... <laughs> I don't think this is dissimilar to some of the debates that we have around prostitution and women, you know, consenting to be part of the sex industry is we make decisions based upon the choices available to us. In Mormon polygamy, there is this, this idea of sacrifice refines you. It makes you a better person. And so if the lifestyle is hard, you're going to get more blessings. Is there a similar narrative for Islamic women, that the harder, the lonelier they are, that uh, they're sort of storing up blessings in heaven. Yeah, yeah, there is, there is definitely that. Um, and there's a sense of, you know, always being tested and that, you know, in the afterlife things will be better, you know, if, if they just, if they can, if they can reconcile, you know, that emotional part of them with what has been ordained and framed within Islam. Then, then that is where the path of happiness lies for them. That's fascinating to me. I'm really interested in why there's a resurgence of this practice. You know, of course, it's always been this way. There's polygamy has existed in one form or another in different cultures throughout the mm -hmm. world. But why, why is it gaining momentum? I think it's, it's tied up with this whole notion of, of Muslim identity and what it means to be a Muslim to be seen to be living values um, that are in the Quran, that are in the Hadith, that are in the teachings of the Prophet. This not, this not questioning, this following a very literal interpretation, which isn't, isn't the history of, of Muslims. It's certainly not a history of Muslims from, from the parts of the world that my family originally come from. And, and this also, also this kind of sense of let, let, let's sort of get back to a time of the earliest Muslims when Islam was pure, when, you know, Islam was spreading, when it was you know, deemed to be successful. And also the family is the, is the unit of the, on which societies are built. So clear gender roles that women as wives, women as childbearers, um, men as protectors, men as bread, breadwinners, men in control. I think it's, it's getting back to that. Getting back to basics to coin a phrase of a British politician. I want to get into conversation talking more about the work that you do, but before we do that, can we talk about your research a little bit? Tell us about mm -hmm. some of the findings that you have found particularly interesting or concerning or maybe surprising. The biggest surprise was, was how open people were to talking about polygamy. Um, I was really shocked because I didn't expect people to be as open. Some of the men that I spoke to were, how can I, I'm not quite sure how to put this, brazen, I think is the word. One man in particular, an Albanian Muslim, um, said, um, people like you are racist. You're absolutely racist to, to people like me. And I, I asked him to explain and he said, I have an Albanian wife. I would like a South Asian wife, but none of your community will give me a woman. And it's because I'm white. And I remember sitting there thinking, I don't think, I don't think the issue was his colour. I think possibly the issue was was him and what he offered. <laughs> so, so on one level, you know, the openness. I think absolutely speaking to to young people who have grown up in polygamous households, that has been absolutely heartbreaking, because I, that's a bit of the conversation that I think needs to be amplified much, much more. I think we're better at talking about women, and we absolutely have to continue to talk about women, talk about those issues of consent, talk about the harm that this does emotionally, psychologically, financially, um, spiritually even, but the children as well. I mean, I had, had one young man who w was in his mid-twenties. He was Malaysian, and he he told me about how 
you know, once his mother was rejected, that he and his siblings were also rejected and that he would stand by and watch his father shower attention and gifts on each subsequent life um, whilst his mother and he became sort of you know, shadows within the household and how much he felt that bad experience had damaged him. There was a young Pakistani woman who I spoke to, and this is probably the most heartbreaking, was she said her father claimed that he'd been forced to marry her mother and he'd brought her from over from Pakistan and then her mother was was expected to take care of um, his parents. He then went off and, and married the woman that he was originally in love in love with. Um, he became a second wife. And she said to me, she said, um, you know, my father may have been forced to marry my mother, but he wasn't forced to have us. And it was just convenient that he now had a carer for his parents. And she said how she watched her mum basically disappear before her eyes as you know, she she would get agitated when her husband came home. He would get increasingly abusive and aggressive and violent. Um, and this young girl was, was 18 when I met her. And, and I hadn't been warned about this. And she disclosed at the end of the interview, she said, my mother killed herself. She's finally free, but I now have two younger siblings to look after and two elderly grandparents. And my father has his life. And I just thought that was shocking, absolutely shocking. The other, th- the other thing, and I've already mentioned it, is polygamy not included in international human rights dis- debates around violence against women and children. I think it absolutely must be there. So one of the things I've recommended from my, ser- my research is that we, we shift from harmful traditional practices to actually talk about harmful marriage practices. Because within that, we will capture female genital mutilation and, and the need to have women um, as virgins when they get married. We will, we will be addressing forced marriage. We'll be addressing sexual violence. We'll be addressing domestic violence. We'll pick up on polygamy and its links and all new to, to faith-based abuse, to trafficking, to sexual exploitation, to a whole range of things. It's been, it's been quite a journey. And finally, the thing that's, that I'm deeply saddened by and that I'm really glad that you've invited me to speak to you today about is forced marriage is very much on the agenda in this country and in Europe. Um, you know, I've been heavily involved in that um, over the years. We have legislation, um, both criminal and civil legislation around forced marriage. Um, same with female genital mutilation. We talk about on the base violence much more openly. For some reason, polygamy just doesn't attract that same level of public, media or political opprobrium that those other issues that I've listed do. We had, um, a, a, a death that was, that was covered, um, in the media a few years ago, a young Afghan woman who was a model, Sahad Daftari who married a Pakistani man, not realising that he was already married. And when she found out, obviously there were huge tensions within the marriage. And um, she, she killed herself. And her family have been campaigning for for um, justice as they see it, because there's been, you know, no evidence, no kind of action taken against the husband. It was the inquest delivered a verdict of, of suicide, you know, but the context is really important. And he entered into a marriage without being open and honest about what sort of marriage it would be. He also entered into a marriage that is not legally recognized because what Muslim men do is they exploit a legal loophole. So if you take a second wife in this in this country and you have two um, civil marriages, the second marriage will be bigamous and that's subject to criminal legislation. But if you have one civilly recognized marriage and one religious marriage, um, the religious marriage doesn't come to the attention of lawmakers or the legal system because, um, so, so you're basically avoiding the bigamy, um, the crime of bigamy, which is, it, again, is, is something that needs to be addressed. Talk to me. Do you have any sort of estimate on numbers of how many Num- people numbers are practicing? Of- Numbers are varying. I've, I've not, I've not been in a position to sort of gauge numbers, but you will see some reports where they say 10,000 in the UK, all the way up to 100,000. So we, we've got no idea. 
but given that it's spoken about so openly now in, in the Muslim community in particular, I think the numbers would be significant. And one other question. Uh, you talked about you were surprised at the openness, people talking to you about this. That, to me, suggests that there is a sort of underground secrecy with this. Is that because of the legal ramifications in each country, or is it just... Tell me, tell me what this looks like in the UK or in Pakistan. Is it, is it more accepted in Pakistan than in the UK? Do people have little, you know, fundamentalist groups that they live in communities that are mostly polygamous? What does that look like? It's not necessarily that you're living in communities that are, that are polygamous in the same way that you've got, um, um, you know, sort of Mormon sects living within sort of particular geographical areas. But you will have, Families living within communities that are polygamous and that are openly known to be polygamous, so there's no sort of hiding away. There are no legal ramifications because it's a religious marriage, so you've not broken the law of the UK land. So, but there is a, when I was looking for interviewees, I thought it was going to be incredibly difficult and, and it's not always been easy, but when I have spoken to people, they've been, you know, Yes, this is what we do. Yes, my son will have more than one wife, or my brother will have more than one wife, or women saying, absolutely, yes, we're, we're pro polygamy. It's fine. It's a tenant of our faith. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely surprising. Can I just come back to the numbers thing quickly, Lindsay? One of the issues that I found with my research and being able to pin down numbers is, is how do you define it? Because you, you, you know, you've got this, movement of women in and out of marriages and with some of the cases you know one case in particular um two, two of a woman i spoke to who you know said that nobody knew that um she was a second wife and um and, and the woman that i told you who was a, who was like me you know she kept it hidden from a, a lot of people and and then because you've got this sort of constant movement of people um if one one couple thinks their relationship is monogamous but actually he's entered into another relationship that she doesn't know about is that a polygamous marriage strictly how i think there's a there were huge issues of, of definition particularly when you've got this constant sort of moving around of women um because they're not living in one household usually in, in, in terms of the cases i've met they seem to be in separate household we have much smaller houses here and it seems to be the man who moves between um each of the households what is it that men get out of this besides, you know, maybe what we would assume are the obvious benefits of multiple sexual partners? In Mormonism, men get exaltation, they get status. So what do, what do uh, Muslim men get from this? If, if it's just about caretaking the widows and sometimes it's forced marriage, what is the benefit to them? I've only met one man who's married a, um, a widowed woman, and that was in the Nigerian case where I interviewed both both the first wife and the and the husband. Um, so he felt that he was he was doing his religious duty and supporting a widow and her, her two boys in Nigeria who you know otherwise wouldn't have any means of financial support. Why he couldn't just send the money every month? Why he felt that you know a sexual relationship with the woman was also part of the bargain? I, I'm, I guess we all we all understand, and um, and then of course the, the divorced um, woman who I mentioned, but I'm I'm not sure as I didn't speak to him. I'm not sure that he was open about having taken another wife. Most of the men that I've spoken to, with you know one or two exceptions, they're looking for virgin virgin wives. They're looking for a new younger model. So I don't think it's about. I don't think it's about this protection of widows and children. And then you've also got to remember, Islam has a built-in welfare system. We have something called zakat, where you give, um, you're expected to give two and a half percent of your, um, you know, your annual income in charity every year. We're in the month of Ramadan, and you know, Muslims give huge amounts during this month from zakat in order to, you know, give to the poor to help feed the poor, etc. So we already have that system. So for me, there is no need for polygamy aren't using the justifications that that men use. I think it's about sexual access. I think it's about status. So in some you will get richer men being able to have more wives, um, which is what is playing out in some parts of the world, so that there are few fewer women available to younger men, which you know, again, you know, can can 
can result um, in difficulties in, in themselves. I, I think it's about status and I think it's about, I think it's about sexual access. You know, it's surprising to me just how many similarities Mormonism has with Islam after listening to this. Um, and one of the things that we have is the story that polygamy is for the widows and for the women who can't take care of themselves. But statistically speaking, we sort of align with, with what your research has found, which is, yeah, there are a few widows here and there, but ultimately it becomes about uh, virgin women, you know, these young, these young virgin women who, um, have never been married, don't have kids. Yeah. And it's interesting how the sort of myths and the explanations and the reasons don't actually match up with yeah. the practice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, then you hear sort of, and I've heard it from, you know, some of the, um, the research that I've read around more women, um, certainly some of the, the the television programs that I've also seen, how close to reality some of those are, I don't know. But, um, you know, women saying that, you know, we're working we've got, with our sister wives, we have we have the same expression. Um, you know, you've got more help around the house, you've got shared parenting. And I just think, what's the role of the father then? Where is, is his role in terms of Helping around the house. I mean, we know, we know, we know from the Hadith and we know from the writings about the life of the Prophet that he did engage in domestic chores as well. So where is it that Muslim men now feel that the domestic realm is completely alien to them and not one that they should engage with? And becoming a father is much, much more than, to put it crudely, sperm donation. Yes. And we have this same discussion within Mormon feminist circles of how, you know, women, we call men, the providers and women, the nurturers, we believe that women are inherently nurturing. And, you know, anyone that's been married knows that that's not always the case. For example, I would like to think that I'm naturally nurturing, but actually my husband is far more of a natural nurturer than I am. I've had to practice it and learn at it. And so it just, it's really demeaning to men to this idea that they we often say men don't babysit the kids, they parent their kids, right? But it's yeah. not, I think polygamy sort of amplifies this. It it does, it relegates people to how they can produce children, which is yeah. which is so complicated and so reductive. One question, did you say that you, in Islam, they use the same term sister wives as well? Yeah, I'm hearing, I'm hearing that so much now. I want to talk about you for a minute now. You've done a lot of activism. You have been fighting for gender equality for a while. You're uh, you're studying to get your doctorate. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. In Oriental and African studies. Yeah, I was I start, started off my PhD research at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and um, I've stopped it for the moment because um, the activism has taken over, but around polygamy issues still. Well, so I'll go back and finish activism. it soon. I want to hear, I want you to tell listeners about your activism and kind of what you do and, and maybe the challenges you face within your own community for speaking out about these issues. Okay. Um, in terms of my activism, I've been involved in um, work on violence against women and girls for, this is my 31st year. I'm, I'm absolutely committed. And, you know, I, I said I'm of Muslim heritage to, and our values come from the homes that we come from, from the faith that we come from. So I've been incredibly lucky to have um, a mother who is devout, but all, um, in terms of her practice, but also um, an ardent feminist. And my father also, uh, my late father, that my sisters and I describe as the first feminist we ever knew. So, you know, from, from that sort of foundation uh, going forward, so my activism takes, you know, um, I write... Um, I speak at conferences in terms of, you know, my actual career history. Um, you know, I've worked as a caseworker. I've worked on policy. I've worked on strategy. I was director of partnerships and diversity with the Metropolitan Police Service in London, working on, um, on a base violence, forced marriage, domestic violence, etc. Um, I'm now, um, I guess my two key roles. One is with, um, as a board member of the End Violence Against Women Coalition which is exactly what it says. It's a coalition of, of women um, in terms of services to support women, but also activists from across the UK addressing you know, the kind of myriad of issues that women face. And and there, I you know, it's not just in terms of faith and gender, but it's one issue that I, I do talk an awful lot about. And then I'm also a board member of um, the Centre for Secular Space, 
that my understanding of secularism is not that it's anti-theist and that it's anti-religion, but it's a structure in which religion and the state are separated, but it offers protection for people of faith and people of no faith and minorities, etc. So that's my understanding of secularism. And through that, I've been working on um, against fundamentalist movements, not just in Islam, but, you know, access to reproductive health and child sexual abuse, whether that's, you know, the Christian and Catholic churches or whether it's, you know, the mosques or the temples, etc. Um, what else have we been doing? I'm just trying to think through, um, you know, speaking at various events, challenging religious institutions so we have something that we have religious arbitration um in the uk we have beth dins um for the jewish faith and we have um sharia courts or sharia councils and both um we also have ecclesiastical courts um but they're pronouncing on family matters and what we're seeing certainly in the sharia courts is some of the most conservative interpretations of, of islamic um law that you will see anywhere. Um, the government have just launched a review into Sharia court, so um, I'll be I'll be campaigning on on that issue hugely. Obviously, on forced marriage on the base funds, but absolutely polygamy, which I've been totally consumed by, as I said, for a number of years. In terms of where it's left me personally, I, obviously I've had some criticisms. I you know I've got a very very supportive family, but there are members of my extended family who are not comfortable with the position I take. Um, I've lost friends along the way who, who were of the same faith background, but also um, friends in the anti-racist movement who think that I'm, you know, I've been accused of being Islamophobic. I've had um, a couple of death fatwas sent to me. But, you know, I, I feel duty-bound. I feel duty-bound to use this position of privilege that I have to be able to speak up about issues that are, I think, are hugely important for all of us um, to protect those who are less, you know, who were in less privileged, less comfortable positions. And I know that that comes with some difficulties, but um, you have to follow your heart and have to do what you believe in. And I, this is, you know, part of me speaking my truth. You've written a book, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Talk to us about the book. Okay, the book is called um, Moving in the Shadows, and it's an edited collection. I was I was one of the editors. So um, there's myself, Professor Liz Kelly, who um, is, is a leading academic and expert internationally recognized on violence against women, and Hanana Siddiqui, who again um, is also an internationally recognized expert on violence against women, but particularly in minority communities. So in the book, I've written... Um, you know, um, as well as co-editing, I've written a chapter on polygamy, which details um, some of my early research. And I've also written on a chapter on faith-based abuse, so spirit possession, um, labelling of children as witches, um, and some of the, the kind of the effects that we the impact of that. So that that's sort of the book, and I've quoted sort of from, from some of the early research to you during the course of this conversation. Um, I'm currently working on a book which will just focus on polygamy, which I'm hoping will be out next year, towards the end of next year, which will bring together sort of some of the newer research of the links to um, the extremist Islamist narrative and this political political movement that we're seeing within Islam. Having some more case studies of the African customary experience um, within the UK, um, the the Muslim experience within the UK. Um, I'm hoping as I research and write that book, but I'll be able to to visit um, Canada. I'd love to come to the States. I'm, I'm not sure I'd be able to, but certainly go to Canada and go to South Africa again and, and do some more research there as part of pulling that book together. That's fantastic. And we'll link to your book, your current book. Is there a way that our listeners can support you or to be more involved? What would you, how can we help support the work you're doing? What I think is really important is that all of us working on polygamy in whichever context it's happening is that we speak to each other, that we share our research, is that we act as a coalition and we make our individual voices louder. We have to get our politicians, our lawmakers to hear the experiences of women, that this is not some theoretical issue. This is not about challenging doctrine. You 
the Quran will not change. The Quran sits there. The teachings of, of, of my faith sit there, as I'm sure they do for you. But this is about the lived realities of women and children and young men too. You know, I've read about what happens to, to young Mormon men and them being abandoned. I've certainly seen um, and spoken to young Muslim men who was, you know, in some context who were saying there is absolutely no hope for me ever to get married because I'm, you know, I come from a poor background. I you know, you see young, you know, richer men coming and, and taking our women. There's a whole kind of debate around this. I mean, even framing it as our women and that whole sense of ownership and entitlement remains. But I think we have to come together and and amplify amplify our voices in unison to um to force people to listen. Well, Yasmin, I really appreciate you coming on. You're such an inspiration. You've been working at this a lot longer than than I have, and many people that I know have. And and in some ways, I do think the costs are higher for you. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing, and I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. Can I just say a huge thank you, Lindsay? Because um. I don't often get a chance to speak about this, but to have this platform, I'm eternally grateful and I hope that we can stay in touch. We should have more conversations. This should just be the beginning of it. So it's, it's so nice to talk to you and to know that there are others doing this work out there in other faith traditions. Thank you. You take care. All the very best. Don't forget to join me at Sunstone this year, one of the biggest Mormon parties around, featuring all different kinds of Mormons, whether you're a believer or not believer, post-Mormon, ex-Mormon, faithful Mormon, LGBT Mormon, international Mormon, Mormon of color, you're all invited. It's at the University of Utah the last week in July. People fly in from all over the world to come. You're going to miss it if you don't mark it on your calendar. So make space and we'll see you there. Visit sunstone.org to register.